Paul says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and in Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Father, we just humbly ask and pray right now for your assistance as we open your word. We want to continue in just an attitude of worship towards you. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would prepare us. We ask, Lord, that you take away the distractions in our hearts and minds and anything, Lord, which would keep us from hearing your voice speak to us in just a personal in a direct way we need to hear from you God and we believe that you are a God who speaks and that you do such through your word and the still small voice of your spirit as we read it and open it so we ask bless your word Lord we ask for your spirit's anointing upon it and that it would speak to us in a way that we know we heard your voice so minister to us now by your scripture and through your spirit's ministry we ask in Jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated You know, what indeed is the most powerful force in our world? If you do a search, which I did for curiosity's sake on Google, the top answers that come up when you type in what is the most powerful force in the world, the top answers that come up are nuclear power, love, and music. Now, I believe that one of the most powerful forces that's forgotten, obviously, uh, probably maybe the most powerful force, is what transpires when a person on this earth turns to God in faith for salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, because that causes miraculous transformation in a person's life and this is really what our text this morning is indicating to us some of the evidences of the powerful salvation of God that transpired in the lives of these Thessalonian believers revealing to us the results or the effects of God's salvation in the lives of these people and Paul's firsthand awareness of how that happened among them when he went there and proclaimed the gospel to them and he's speaking of this from firsthand reading reality of this church in which he was a part of planning there he began his letter we saw last time and continuing on this morning by just rejoicing in what God has done among them as a particular group of people there remembering the fruit of their salvation or the evidence or proof of their salvation Paul spoke last time we saw how that produced in them remember a work of faith and a labor of love and this patient hope in the coming expectancy of Jesus Christ and Paul now as we go on in verse 4 just continues expressing that appreciation and encouragement really by referring the remainder of the chapter 
of just more indication and more evidence of the power of God's salvation in their lives. He begins speaking of that going on in verse 4 saying knowing <clears throat> excuse me knowing beloved brethren he says your election by God. So as Paul speaks to the Thessalonian believers here, notice he refers to them as spiritual family members and he indicates right here in our verse, you can look at it there, how they became such. The way they became spiritual family members together with Paul and Silas and Timothy, Paul mentions in this verse particularly, it's because they were loved by God and they were chosen by God. They were loved by God and they were chosen by God. The first thing he does is call them beloved, which indicates those loved by God. Sometimes when older or traditional ceremonies of weddings, people would say dearly beloved. The idea is, again, those who are loved. So he's speaking of those who are loved by God and just reminding us that the very origin, the very origin of God's plan of salvation is rooted in the unconditional love that God has for us. Jesus, in his probably most famous statement many know, declared what? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Paul, writing about salvation in Ephesians chapter 2, says this, We are saved because of his great love with which he loved us. See, despite our sinfulness, Despite our rebellion against God and our resistance of God and rejection of God, He loves us unconditionally. We don't have to earn His love. We can't change His love. We don't have to obtain His love. God loves us without conditions and so He desires our best. And the main thing He desires our best in is that we would be reconciled into a relationship with Him as our Creator, that our sins could be forgiven that we could have the hope of eternal life. And this morning, you need to know God loves you for one reason. Not because you're lovable. God loves you because God is loving. And it doesn't matter who you are. It does not matter what you have done in your life. It does not matter even this morning where you may be at in your life. God loves you because God is loving and God cannot change. And God will not change. He puts no conditions on that love, your past performance, your present situation. No matter what you've done, God loves you. And sending Jesus, the Bible teaches, was God's greatest proof and demonstration of that. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. He says, in this, the love of God was manifested or revealed toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, it was the fact that God loved you so much that led him to send Jesus initially to this earth to do what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it's the fact that God loves you that then personally prompted and directed God to search you out and to reveal himself to you and to reach you wherever you were at to show you your need for Jesus and the love that he has for you to bring you into your own personal salvation experience like these Thessalonians. So Paul speaks of how they were loved by God, but verse 4, he also says another way they came into the family of God, Paul indicates also, is that they were chosen by God. 
You see what he says there in verse 4? He says, you, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, the word election speaks of a selection or a choice out of a group. That's what an election is. And some translations render this, you are subjects of his divine selection. Uh, the, Paul, when he writes to believers in Colossians chapter 3, he addresses Christians there as the elect of God. That's what he calls them. Now, whenever the Bible speaks of election in the New Testament, it always does so in connection to divine choice and the reality that God has foreknowledge, meaning that God knows all things. He can never learn anything and he knows all things even beforehand. Jesus said in John 15, 16 to his disciples, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In other words, P Peter and James and John, those who were following Jesus, Jesus was saying to them, listen, the only reason you're following me is not because you're really smart and you made a good choice, Peter, finally. Jesus was saying the only reason you're really following is not something you should take credit for. The reason you're following me is because I chose you before you ever decided to follow me. I'm the one who reached out to you and pursued you and called you to myself. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter then said, Believers are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Ephesians 1 says it this way, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Paul, when he writes his second letter to the Thessalonians, will again reinforce this issue of the doctrine of election where he there says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 God from the beginning chose you for salvation listen the Bible clearly teaches that those who are saved are saved for the very reason that God chose us to be saved he elected us he selected us to be saved now equally true is that the Bible also teaches that God holds each and every human being responsible for their decision and the exercise of their free will to accept Jesus Christ for salvation. And God holds every human soul accountable for whether or not they choose to trust in Christ for salvation or whether they choose to reject Christ and to refuse the salvation that he offers. Listen, the doctrine of election is a teaching, a doctrine for the person who is saved. It's a doctrine for the Christian to encourage us, to help us realize the depths of God's love for us, to know that he initiated things. And it allows God to be God and allows God to receive all the glory for the salvation process. And to be the one who is appreciated in humble appreciation that God actually chose you. That God actually wanted you to be a part of his family. What a glorious thought to think that the God of creation actually picked and selected you. That he picked you to be his child and that you would spend eternity with him. Maybe in your life throughout all of it on this earth, maybe everybody else has always overlooked you. And when the volleyball game was going to be played and they were picking teams, you were always that one when it got down to the final two. And you sat there and thought, please, there's two of us left. This time, please, something. You know, and, and constantly overlooked, last one chosen. And maybe your whole life, you know, you've experienced rejection in a lot of ways and that's painful. Maybe you've been rejected by lots of people, maybe even rejected by your own family. 
Maybe you've lived a life of always being overlooked and always being set aside. Listen, this morning, you should be incredibly blessed as a child of God because God picked you. God selected you. God chose you. God revealed himself to you and sought you out and drew you to himself and he asked you to be on his team and a part of his family and that should make you as a Christian feel incredibly secure. That should solve all your insecurity issues. That should make you feel incredibly loved and overwhelmed that God wanted you and that God put such value on your life that you are so important to God that he actually, before you were born, determined that you would be his child and wanted you to spend eternity with him. And keep in mind, that means he did that knowing everything about you, knowing everything about who you are and everything that you've done and everything that you would do, that God still said, yeah, I know all that about him. I know all those weaknesses and I even know what he's going to do, but I still want you to be my child. And that God still selected you in his great and incredible love. And he initiated graciously the salvation process. Paul said this in Romans 8. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now remember. As we talk about election in the Bible here, our human minds are limited unlike God's. So our intellect is limited. Our logic is not quite complete. And so we wrestle trying to mentally grasp in our minds divine election, especially as it pertains to divine election in relation to this other thing called free will. And so we struggle logically and it is led, as many of us know, if you've been a part of the church for some time, it has led to endless debates of those who need to, in my opinion, set aside faith for intellectual satisfaction. And so those who need to have intellectual satisfaction at the top of their game and prove that they can explain things perfectly establish their little camps well we're this and 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 so people fly to one extreme or another how does election line up with free will and personal responsibility and 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 did god choose me or did i choose god yes both both the bible teaches both the doctrine of divine election and human free will see election exalts and upholds god's sovereignty And free will indicates man's personal responsibility and eternal accountability. One does not cancel out the other. Both truths exist in this same book in which God inspired and wrote by his spirit. Like two parallel lines, they both run through the scripture and are complementary. And here's the thing that you just have to settle into from God's perspective, which isn't my little finite perspective. From God's perspective, there's no contradiction. From God's perspective in his infinite understanding he sees free will and divine election as two complementary truths and he sees how it all works out and he has no problem with it he's not up in heaven going am i a calvinist or an arminianist what am i because god's the ultimate biblicist god just wrote his word he says from my perspective they don't contradict and when you get here you'll understand that too i almost sense that god will say to us when you get here, you'll understand that. Look, we, 
People get into huge debates and they struggle and wrestle over this and strain at gnats. And I mean, look, we have to recognize and, and realize the existence of both doctrines. They are both in the Scripture. They are both there. You can't explain or cast out either one of them. The Bible teaches that those who are saved have been elected and chosen for their salvation. And the Bible also clearly teaches that we are all, every human being, responsible for what we do in the exercise of our free will regarding receiving Jesus Christ in a salvation or rejecting Jesus Christ in a salvation. It's not the easiest to understand logically, but one thing it does, ladies and gentlemen, it lets God be God. It lets God be God. Don't wrestle it out mentally, how it all works and operates. Instead, in faith, personally rejoice that it works, that it does work. And, and, and let yourself be blessed that God chose you. See, one major mistake, I'll say this, and I've said it before, one major mistake that people make in regards to divine election is, is that they try and carry it out in their own human assumptions and logical conclusions. And here's a trail that some go down, trying to draw it out in their own logical conclusions. People then begin to logically conclude, well, well wait a minute here. So if God chooses people to be saved and he chooses people to go to heaven, well, that's horrible. That means God also chooses people to be damned and to go to hell. Now listen, that sounds like a logical conclusion as you think it out logically. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible choose, uh, teaches that God chooses people to be saved and go to heaven, but the Bible does not teach that God predestines or chooses people to be damned and go to hell. That does not exist. That's human conclusion. But that's not what the scripture teaches. And this is why we have to be careful. And where human logic can get in the way. The Bible says whoever will may freely come. It's not God's will that any would perish. Perhaps you say this morning, if you're even not a, a Christian yet, you're saying, well, wait a minute. I don't know if I like that. How do I know if God chose me? Well, let me give you a simple solution. If you want to know whether or not God chose you, here's this morning my recommendation. I suggest repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised what you find out afterwards. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, maybe God hasn't chosen you then. I don't know. <laughs> but let God be God and let the word of God say what it does. We'll notice in this section here as we're going through it this morning, in these verses, Paul references regarding salvation, how God elected them for salvation here in verse 4. But notice also in the same chapter, he talks about how they chose to turn to God from their idols and their own free will was exercised from God's perspective again it reconciles perfectly so Paul now begins to talk about human and divine experience of both in the salvation and conversion process how both sides of it exist he says verse 5 for our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know Paul says what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So Paul calls to mind here what kind of men they were when they came to Thessalonica preaching the gospel, Paul mentions, in the power of the Holy Spirit. What Paul wants to do here is remind them that what happened when he came there to Thessalonica to preach the gospel and to plant that church, Paul wants them to be reminded, look, it was not just a, a very persuasive sales presentation that happened when we showed up there. It was truly a supernatural work of the Spirit of God 
that happened as I came among you. See what he says, verse 5? Look at the text again. He says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit. The word gospel, again, just means a message of good news. It's the good news of the salvation that's available through Jesus Christ. And since it is a message or news, it takes words to communicate it. It's something to be conveyed and spoken because it is a message and it is news. So, again, you can't just present the gospel through drama. The word of God needs to be spoken. It's a message. There needs to be a clarification, communication of the truth. And yet Paul, notice, points out here in verse 5 that he didn't just present facts alone that were accurate about the gospel, even though, let me just say, that's important. The facts being accurate and a true presentation of what the gospel is in comparison to some who say they present the gospel, but they leave certain accurate, important components out. An accurate description, an accurate communication of the right words and accurate facts about the gospel is critical. But Paul says that's not enough. He says he also communicated the message in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think Paul's mentioning a few things here. First of all, he knew the message of the gospel itself, the actual gospel message itself, possesses power from God. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. See, there's something we have to remember regarding this gospel message is there is power supernaturally encoded in the DNA, if you would, of that message of the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Somehow that message of the gospel can bring about, as we've seen and some of us experience, supernatural, miraculous transformations in people's lives, spiritually and eternally. Between man and God, when that gospel message is heard and then believed and responded to in faith, it brings the power of salvation to transform a person's life and convert them. Paul also, no doubt, is speaking of how in verse 5 here that the gospel didn't come in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. How when Paul spoke and communicated, he did such under the anointing of the Spirit of God. That he wasn't just trying to be perfectly polished in the presentation and so, okay, if I, I got all my rhetoric and my public speaking down, so if I can just give a perfect, polished presentation with all the right facts and maybe a few little you know, persuasive statements and maybe even a joke or an illustration, then I'll just, I'll just I'll reel them right in with my perfect sales pitch. No, that was the furthest thing from the truth. Paul understood right facts are essential, but apart from the Holy Spirit, there's a dynamic that gets lost in the process. That dynamic of speaking the gospel in the spirit and in power is what makes it effective and fruitful. Listen to Paul speaking to the Corinthians regarding this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 to 5. Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why did Paul say that? Because Paul was a theological giant. I mean, Paul was used by God to inspire the majority of New Testament doctrine. And Paul says, but when I came to Corinth, I had to resolve. I had to determine I'm just going to keep it about Jesus. I'm going to be very simple about Jesus himself and his crucifixion in simplicity. And then Paul says this going on. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear 
and in much trembling. Doesn't sound like a very impressive public speaker, does it? Hey, we have this public speaker. You really got to have him to your church. Well, tell us a little bit about him. Well, yes, he, you know, he's weak, he's extremely fearful, and he trembles every time he talks. Right? Who, who would, who would want to bring that guy in? Paul says this was his condition, but he says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul understood that dynamic of spiritual anointing upon the one who is speaking and communicating is critical. And when we share the gospel with people, yes, share the right facts, but also be humbly dependent and say, Lord, please, I need you to anoint me with your spirit that the words I convey would have the Spirit's anointing upon them. Paul also states here in verse 5 how he shared these things. Look at it, he says, and in much assurance. That speaks of the personal sense of confidence that Paul had as he shared the gospel. He didn't just share it accurately and in the power of the Spirit, but he also shared it with a real sense of personal confidence in assurance. Why? Because Paul had experienced salvation himself personally. And because he had experienced the power of God's salvation, he wasn't just speaking learned information from a gospel training seminar. Paul was speaking from his own depths of his being about the transforming power of Jesus Christ that he was so utterly confident about because he realized it changed my life, man. It changed my life. It revolutionized me. And therefore, when he spoke, he spoke it with assurance, with a sense of confidence. You know, I'll tell you, these three things are important for all of us as we share the gospel. As we share the gospel, we need to understand that the power of God is contained in that gospel message. That it is a powerful message when we share it and people believe upon it. And we should seek to share the gospel, not just with accurate words, but under the anointing of the Spirit's power. And that we would want the power of the Spirit to bless and anoint what we say. And when we share the gospel, we should speak it from a place of personal experience with much assurance. Not let me tell you the you know, five facts of, of you know, how to receive the gift of God. But you know what? Tell people your story. Yes, share the gospel. But tell people why you're sharing the gospel. And what's happened and transpired in your life with much assurance. Paul goes on, verse 6, to say, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So notice, Paul recalls to mind here, if you would, how when they heard the gospel and they decided to follow Jesus, that the evidence of that salvation was seen in that they received and responded to the invitation and became followers. Now, I want you to notice this in verse 6 here. I think this is important. Notice that becoming a Christian from the human side now, notice it involves personal response. Personal response to hearing the gospel. Because look what Paul's saying there in verse 6. He speaks of two things, receiving the word and becoming a follower of the Lord. That's personal response. Not just hearing it, but now receiving the word and then becoming a follower of the Lord. The first thing Paul says in verse 6 is when they heard the gospel, though it was powerfully presented in the anointing of the Spirit, Paul says, you then had a human response. You became, he says, followers of us and of the Lord. In other words, they followed the life example of Paul and Silas and Timothy 
in that they decided to join them to become fellow followers of this person, Jesus Christ, who was being presented to them, even though the Thessalonians realized that that wouldn't be an easy road and that that would involve difficulty if they became followers of the Lord, just like Paul and Silas and Timothy, who rolled into town beat up from the last town they had been in. See, Paul's life represented and indicated that following Jesus meant a little bit of suffering and difficulty and persecution and it wasn't always an easy road yet they still chose to imitate the example Paul modeled by following Jesus as well why just because Paul was such a great example no that stemmed from the more important decision they made which was they foremost decided to be followers not just of Paul fellow followers but to be followers of the Lord to become followers of Jesus. Oftentimes when you read the Gospels, you notice Jesus extends invitations to people in two words. He would just authoritatively say to people, what? Follow me. Follow me. And when Jesus said, follow me, that always involved a willingness to forsake one's own path and current pursuits in order to follow his path to follow his plan and his purposes. And that also included a willingness to live the way that Jesus lived and to experience what Jesus experienced. And in light of that, by way of personal application, let me say this this morning. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. Yes, we put faith in Christ, but we put faith in Christ, we talked about last week, in such a way where it becomes a work of faith, where our faith produces the works that are consistent with the life of a follower of Jesus. So to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus by faith and faithfulness. It starts by embracing his invitation or call to be forgiven of our sins and to follow him as our Lord. And it involves living then submitted to his lordship, his rulership over my life. It involves forsaking my right to be in control of my life and do as I please and live the way that I want to live, but instead allowing Jesus to now lead and guide me. And it also includes following his example and his pattern of living by emulating Christ and living the way that Jesus modeled and imitated. 1 John 2 says, He who says he abides in him, that's Jesus, ought to live or ought to walk just as he walked. So Paul says you became followers of the Lord. Another aspect of their human response, he says here in verse 6, is that they received the word. In other words, Paul saying you received the truth of the gospel. When you heard the word of the gospel, when you heard the word of God, presented you personally embraced and accepted its claims and its demands you by faith chose to respond to it in receiving it what's more is notice he says in verse 6 that they did that in a way that really demonstrated the sincerity of their commitment you see what paul says in verse 6 which shows the sincerity he says you receive the word but then he adds in much affliction with the joy of the holy spirit like paul who had been through a lot of affliction in following Jesus in his own life, the Thessalonians also received the word and chose to follow Jesus amidst resistance and difficulties in their own lives as well, which we saw last week in Acts 17, which proved the sincerity of their commitment because hear me, obviously it was not an easy decision to follow Christ. 
It did not mean a smooth road and no problems. Yet despite the suffering, they genuinely wanted to follow the Lord regardless. Regardless. Which shows the sincerity indicating the true devotion they had to Jesus. It was not just a verbal profession. Which then when difficulty came because it was shallow, changed, and now they no longer wanted to follow Jesus if that meant resistance or challenges. Or they'd follow Jesus as long as he keeps their life perfectly calm and peachy keen, but as soon as he allows some challenges or difficulties, that's it, I'm, I'm done with this Jesus thing. I chose to follow him and now I'm still having problems or trials or difficulties. And it was a genuine submission of their lives to the lordship of Jesus that was carried out even in hard times that was walked out even in the midst of affliction and difficulty and their relationship with Jesus applied the joy of the Spirit amidst those hardships. Hey, let me say this this morning. Perhaps recently, personal hardship in your life or some affliction or mistreatment or suffering has tested the sincerity of your desire to follow Jesus. Can I just say... That's not always a bad thing. Maybe personal hardship has now tested the sincerity of your commitment to the Lord and you have an opportunity to find out, are you really in it to follow Jesus? Just to follow Jesus? Are you willing to keep going and serving Jesus and find joy in the Lord? See, sometimes testing is a good thing because it brings reality home in a real way. And I'll tell you this, if we've truly decided to follow Jesus, we will remain rooted even in the storms. And we will say like the disciples when he said to them when times got a little hard, he said, uh, everybody else seems to be leaving. John 6, Jesus said, uh, are you going to leave also? Wait a minute, Jesus, what are you doing telling people to leave? You're never supposed to tell people to leave the church, leave your following. Jesus said, look, if you're just following when it's easy, you don't have to follow. Jesus said to Peter, James, John, are, are you going to leave now too? And remember what they said? Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. In other words, Lord, just because it's not easy or just because it's hard, certainly that doesn't mean that we don't want to follow you anymore. And I'll tell you, it is a beautiful thing sometimes even in our lives amidst hardship and affliction and difficulty to be brought to that place where you say, yeah, this is a really hard time or I've been going through a real hardship or this is really painful but I'm going to follow Jesus because I want to follow Jesus. And even if nothing gets easier, I will still follow Jesus. That beautiful song, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Paul says, verse 7, so that you then became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, Paul says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, the area of Greece there, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So Paul was praising them here, this young congregation, this new church, because they really had become a model church in setting a great example and also in the fact that they were very evangelistic even as a young church. They had established a wonderful reputation, Paul says, in such a way, he says, I don't even need to say anything about you 
because your reputation speaks so loudly for itself. Notice, first of all, in verse 7, the way they had remained committed to Jesus to follow him amidst suffering. Paul says, in that, boy, he says, you have really become examples now to all in Macedonia and all in Achaia who believe. He's speaking of other believers in that region of Greece there who were, in a sense, both inspired by and instructed from the incredible example of these Christians there in Thessalonia that were young converts, but yet how they had handled their experiences of pain and hardship and difficulty and had remained faithful to Jesus, that was now helping other believers who were looking on at them and being inspired by that example and being instructed by their example. And I would just say this, Remember, as a Christian, when you are going through something, remember that it is possible, it may just be, that God is also wanting to use your life as an example for other believers. It may just be that as you're going through your hardship or navigating the fiery furnace yourself, perhaps God is wanting to use your life and your example to inspire other people who watch how you handle the fire who are instructed as they look at your life and they're facing challenges too and they look at your life and they see that you are choosing to do it the right way and that in the midst of the pressure and the hardship that you are walking out your situation in faithfulness and commitment to Christ and that inspires and encourages that example other believers in the family of God and let me just say this man we need good examples in the family of God can I encourage you personally this morning, whatever you're going through, seek to be a good example. We need good examples in the body of Christ. We need faithful examples in the body of Christ to inspire, to instruct, to encourage others. Paul also secondly mentions here in verse 8 another way they were a great model church. He says in verse 8, from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God, he says, has gone out. So they were a congregation that was engaged in evangelism, in outreach to the unbelieving world. He says, from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. The term there is reverberated, literally. The language indicates uh, when you would toss a stone, let's say, into a pond, and you, know, you toss a stone into a pond, how the ripples go out and, and just watch the ripples and they keep going all the way out to the edges of the water. That's the idea there. The word of the Lord, Paul says, is just ringing out and reverberating from where you're at. And he says, not only in Macedonia and Greece, but in every place. In other words, they started where they were at locally, but they just kept reaching regions around them and it kept rippling out further. Paul's praising them as a model church because he says, your faith toward God, it's, it's gone out. It's gone out. They understood that their relationship with Christ and their salvation experience was something to be shared with other people. Examples, verse 7, to believers, but evangelists to unbelievers going out into the world, sending forth the word of God. They assembled together as a church for worship and instruction, but then they had a missionary focus when they walked out the door of the meeting, realizing that there was a world to be reached that they went into. And it is never, let us always please remember this, it is never healthy for a church to cease from evangelism and outreach. 
when a church becomes inwardly focused, you know, us for, close the door, no more, we like our nice little intimate thing, us for, that's, that, that's it, and we're good with that. that. That's never a healthy thing. Or when a church becomes inwardly focused, it's all about just the activities within the church and this and that, and we just become a big spiritual social club, that's never healthy. We need to realize we are called to go out into the world. We are called to sound forth the word of the Lord, to share the gospel. It's important that we be committed to a vision and participating in evangelism and outreach and sharing the gospel in our jobs and in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our communities. And that happens in many different ways. We assemble together to worship Jesus. We assemble together to be equipped for works of ministry but we do those things so that we will be healthy, enabled, empowered, and effective witnesses to then sound forth the word of the Lord and to go forth and to reach people in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry, he says, we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So again, the public testimony as people looked on at this work of God that happened in Thessalonica there was proof and evidence to validate that God had accomplished a powerful work of the Spirit there. Paul says the beginning of verse 9, they themselves, others declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Now we're not going to talk much about that because that topic becomes the subject thoroughly of Paul's conversation in chapter 2. Yet considering the powerful evidence of salvation, which is what we want to focus on, Paul describes it in verse 9 by saying, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Let me just say, you might want to write in your Bible there, repentance. That so perfectly portrays what repentance looks like, turning away from one thing and turning toward another thing. A change of direction. It speaks of the proof of their salvation. Look what Paul says, turning to God from idols. Turning away from something so that you can turn to something else. Prior to salvation, they worshipped and served all kinds of other things. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. In Greece and in the Greek culture, it was full of idols, many forms of idolatry. And idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. There are many forms of idolatry. You know, and idolatry is motivated by human greed and human lusts and you know, self-seeking for pleasures and passions. And again, whatever the master passion or pursuit of a person's life is, really that, that is what they worship or it's what they idolize. And they devoted themselves to these other things. And upon hearing the gospel message, calling them to turn away from that idolatry and those other things they served and to turn to the true and the living God, the Thessalonians responded and made a decision or choice to do that via repentance. Via repentance. And repentance, lest we ever forget, is a major component of the salvation experience. Our faith in Christ leads us to repentance. Repentance is to have a change of mind that produces a change of direction and behavior. And that's a necessary thing if we're going to make a personal decision 
to choose to follow Jesus Christ because we are going to have to turn away from other things. By nature, the Bible teaches we're all sinful and rebellious. We're all self-serving by nature. We're not automatically serving God when we're born. We all live in some form of idolatry. Whether it's self-idolatry or the things we idolize in this world, we're all devoted to serving something in our lives and therefore there must come at some point in our life an awareness of our current condition and the reality of what God is requesting and asking of us to turn away from that in repentance that we might turn to Him and to His Son Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and to follow Him And we must make that choice of our own free will to repent from that to God to receive salvation. Jesus himself, when he first began preaching, said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When Peter preached in Acts 2 and 3, Peter said, repent therefore and be converted. Verse 9 here in 1 Thessalonians shows us that repentance is a clear evidence or proof of a person having experienced the power of God's salvation. It will be observed. It will be evident. When someone is truly saved, it will be evident how they have turned away from their past life and they have turned to God to serve God instead. And this morning, let me just say this. Have you had that defining moment in your life? Is there indeed a defining moment in your life when you know, and it is obvious, when you turned away from your old life and you turned to serve God instead? That's salvation. That's salvation. Because faith leads us to that repentance of turning from the past and turning to a new life in Christ. Another evidence Paul concludes with in verse 10 there of their salvation is how they had turned away from those things. Now he says to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So notice they are now awaiting the return of his son Jesus Christ. They had turned from those things. They had turned to follow Jesus and they're now waiting for Jesus because serving God is done by following and serving his son, Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. The Christian life is lived, therefore, in constant anticipation of the return of Jesus, the son of God from heaven. Once again, Jesus came from heaven initially. He lived on this earth sinlessly. He then died sacrificially upon the cross for our sins, rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven. And that same Jesus promised his followers that he would also then return. Jesus in John 14 said, My father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you, I go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So see, these Thessalonians and followers of Jesus live in expectancy, waiting for him to return, waiting for him to deliver us. The Holy Spirit tells us one of the main reasons we're waiting for Jesus' return here. Look at it, verse 9. He says, even Jesus, here's why we're waiting, because he delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, though that can possibly refer to the wrath of God of being banished in hell eternally, I think there it more specifically is a reference to the wrath of God that we poured out 
during the time of the Great Tribulation. A portion of that seven-year period where God's wrath is poured upon a Christ-rejecting world. Listen, the Bible is very clear that it teaches those who reject Jesus and remain in their sin will be subject to the penalty of the wrath of God upon their lives. Paul says in Colossians 3, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And God's wrath will begin, it will begin in the tribulation period. You read Revelation 6 through 19, it describes great cataclysmic judgments that are going to happen, intense human suffering, hundred pound hailstones falling from the sky upon men, the waters becoming undrinkable, plagues and famines like no other time, widespread death and disease, yet nowhere in those chapters do we find a reference to the church existing on earth in that time. Why? Because Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. That happens, Paul is going to describe in chapter 4 through what we call the rapture of the church where we are called up to meet the Lord in the air and he delivers us out before the wrath that is to come on this earth because our trust has been in Christ already bearing the wrath of God for us against our sin. Hey, remember this this morning. We're not as Christians just saved for heaven. We've also been saved from wrath. That should give me a whole new appreciation as a Christian. And if you're here this morning and you are not right with God and you never responded to Jesus, that should give you great incentive to realize that you have the option to bear the wrath of God or to be delivered from the wrath of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Shall we stand together and pray?